Hello, and welcome to the Green Leads Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo, and I'm really, really excited about the guest we have today and the topic we have today. We have one of my friends from grad school, Alyssa Lavi. She is a registered dietitian who specializes in digestive health. And I know for all you athletes out there, this is something that you have a million questions about. She is really like, when I need to know stuff about digestive health, I go to her Instagram. She talks about IBS all the time. She has an IBS course called Trust Your Gut. She's also contributed to national media outlets such as Women's Health, Shave. She's really the expert in all of this. So Alyssa, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited. And so it's fun to connect with an old friend and a colleague. So I'm so excited to be here. Yes, it's it's so nice to talk to you. And like I said, Aside from the questions of like, what should I eat before a workout or how much protein do I need? The next question I always get is like, I have an issue with my gut when I'm running or I have stomach issues. And it's something that I know a little bit about, but I think having an expert talk to these issues is so much more helpful. So I kind of want to just jump in with like common, we're going to use the word or we're going to use this uh, GI a lot, which stands for gastrointestinal for anyone who doesn't know. So common GI disorders that you see a lot among athletes. Are there things that you see popping up a lot? Sure. So, well, I guess we'll get started by saying it's possible for athletes to have any GI condition, just like non-athletes, of course. Um, but in my practice specifically, we do specialize in IBS and I do a lot of work with sports nutrition. So I certainly see that overlap. Um, but of course it's possible for athletes to have other GI conditions such as, um, IBD or inflammatory bowel disease, celiac disease, gastroparesis, you name it. Um, and you know, the, the management strategies really depend on the person because, um, we want to take into account their sport, their condition, their preferences, what's available to them, um, and really the, the whole person. So the most common one that I see in my practice would be IBS. That may be a little skewed because of where I specialize and who's coming to me. Um, but certainly it's possible to have, to have any GI condition and and to be an athlete. And how do people know? Cause this is a question I get a lot is, how, they they seem to only experience a sensitive stomach while running or while doing exercise, but it can be really bad. So how do people know if it's just kind of a sensitive stomach and maybe they're not fueling right, or they have some sort of GI condition? That's a really good question. So I think the most important thing is just never to self-diagnose, even though, sure, sometimes you may get a workup done and it may turn out that there's nothing major going on. I always say it's better to be safe than sorry. Um, And it's definitely worth it to meet with a gastroenterologist because they'll do a thorough workup and ensure that that you're looking at everything that you need to, to make that proper diagnosis. Um, So that would be the first step, meeting with a gastroenterologist. And, um, you know, I don't even want to say best case scenario. They end up saying, oh, you, you may be a little sensitive to this. Try this option. Um, because the other best case scenario is that you identify an issue and you're able to, to manage it, hopefully. Um, and uh, typically, uh, when someone will meet with a gastroenterologist, uh, they, they'll be able to recommend testing that can help to affirm what's going on or rule out other conditions. 
So if someone is diagnosed with something like IBS, first off, let's actually back up. Can we just define IBS for people who don't know? Sure, sure. So IBS is a functional gut disorder, or um, it it can also be called a disorder of the gut-brain interaction, or DGBI. No, that's kind of a mouthful. Um, And basically what that means is that structurally, everything may look okay. So when they do diagnostic tests, um, everything's going to come back essentially unremarkable. Um, And then there is positive diagnostic criteria um, for a gastroenterologist to actually say you have IBS. So first, again, they'll rule out certain conditions um, that may have some similar uh, symptoms. So for example, uh, they may look into um, or they may explore IBD, celiac, uh, look for evidence of colon cancer, just to name a few, just to make sure they're not missing anything big. Um, and then from there, uh, if your diagnostic criteria fits what's called the Rome 4 criteria, um, which is essentially recurrent abdominal pain on average one day a week in the last three months associated with defecation or change in stool frequency or a change in stool form or appearance, um, typically then you may be diagnosed with IBS. I think it's important to understand that IBS is not or should not be a diagnosis that is just sort of slapped on when you can't figure out what's going on. And I think that's unfortunately, there's a lot of stigma around IBS or people feel like they're not getting a valid diagnosis. Um, And that's not true or that should not be true. Um, Typically, there is a protocol to rule out these other conditions because there is no diagnostic test to confirm IBS. So they're looking to rule out these other conditions. And then with that, they'll take that um, diagnostic criteria. And if it fits your picture, your clinical picture, then they will usually deem that you have IBS. And you also mentioned IBD. Can you tell me the difference between IBS and IBD? Sure. So even though some of the symptoms can overlap, um, for example, maybe abdominal pain or diarrhea or altered bowel habit, cramping, urgency, um, they are very different conditions. So IBD or inflammatory bowel disease is used, is a term that's used to describe diseases that are characterized by inflammation um, or even destruction along the GI tract, um, specifically ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease. So ulcerative colitis, we will see that inflammation in the colon, um, whereas Crohn's disease, there could be inflammation or destruction really along any part of the GI tract. Um, And there are actually diagnostic tests to determine whether IBD is is present. So that's something that if they're looking for IBD, they can do certain diagnostic tests and determine if that is in fact what's going on in your situation. Um, And IBD is associated with an increased risk for developing colon cancer. Um, And also one other thing to know is there are some other red flag um, symptoms that again can be vague, but may be more prominent in something like IBD or a different condition other than IBS, something like um, blood in the stool, unintentional uh, weight loss or significant weight loss um, and uh, extreme fatigue just for some examples. Um, Now, IBS is again, functional. So structurally, when they're doing all of these diagnostic tests, um, 
things may not be coming back as remarkable. And then again, if that clinical picture fits that Rome for criteria, they'll usually diagnose you with IBS. Then there is not a known um, increased risk of colon cancer with IBS. Um, and although it was always said previously that IBS really was not um, associated with inflammation, we are finding now that there does seem to be some low grade inflammation present but it is different than the inflammation that is seen with inflammatory bowel disease. So breaking it down to kind of simplistic layman terms, IBS once a week, you may have diarrhea or constipation, but if they looked, did whatever diagnostic test, which I'm assuming is maybe a colonoscopy, they would find really nothing there. Maybe just a little bit of inflammation. If you want to get the latest cutting-edge information in the field of sports medicine, check out my new show, The Sports Physical Therapy Podcast. I'm Mike Reinald. Each week I feature a new interview with some of the leading and emerging experts in our field so they can share their recent research, clinical experience, and best career advice. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah, and typically with IBS, we we don't even see inflammation on that type of, um, on that type of a test used in the general population. This is really, um, the low grade inflammation that I just mentioned is kind of hot off the press with research. Um, and it's something that's sort of new and a little exciting in this area and may give some more answers. (laughs) Um, but again, shouldn't be confused with, um, that, uh, inflammation that is seen with inflammatory bowel disease. Okay, so an inflammatory bowel disease, if they did a colonoscopy, they would see something of note there and it would be, yeah. So those are kind of the differences between those two things. Yes. So if a runner, I I always say runners, but I'm talking about really any athlete, is experiencing, say, diarrhea once a week after finishing a run, that could potentially be IBS. There's no way to really know until you get a workup, like you said, but it could be that. It could not, it may not be just like I'm eating the wrong things. Exactly. I would always say if someone is noticing that, um, well, for example, if they're doing this activity and around the time that they're doing that one activity, they're getting these symptoms. Look, it it could be that there is underlying IBS, um, but it also could be that there are just some other lifestyle factors at play that that could be um, changed around in order to manage that. And that, you know, that could range from being changing one or two small, simple things to to doing more of an overhaul um, with your lifestyle, if that would be appropriate and if that would be relevant. Um, But I I think it's important to know that if you are noticing any major change in symptoms or new onset of symptoms, it can never really hurt to... um, uh, to be seen by a gastroenterologist and to have a workup and never just assume that it's all okay or just nothing. Um, and, and then, you know, you can sort of determine your management strategy from there. So let's say someone does get a workup and they're not diagnosed with IBS. They just are maybe fueling wrong. And I, a question I got a lot, and I literally just asked on Instagram the other day, qu- people submit your questions for a GI expert. And this was a question I got 
probably two or three times. <laughs> what do I do about runner's trots, which is essentially you're running and you feel like you have to go to the bathroom? Is that, what can you do about that? Say it's not IBS. It's not something like that. It's just, I'm not, I'm doing something wrong with my diet. Sure. So there's a lot that we can do there. Um, one thing could be the fueling strategies. So if you're noticing that this is really during your long runs, um, perhaps, you know, a good amount through your long runs, it, it may be how you're fueling maybe prior to that race and during the race or during the long run. Um, so a lot of, um, fuels contain, uh, fructose, um, and fructose is, a lot of people may actually be sensitive to large amounts of fructose. So again, depending on how you're fueling that, that may not be the best option for you. Um, and it may be helpful to swap it out for some other sources that may be less fermentable inside the gut. Um, and, and that may not be as likely to trigger those symptoms, but another thing is also zooming out and looking at the diet as a whole. If, if those fueling strategies are comfortable for you and you're not convinced that it's just that fueling, um, source that you're using and you really like that, you can also look at the bigger picture and see what you're having again, maybe that meal, um, before the long run and also the day before. So, um, I think we'll probably talk about this a little bit more um, as we continue through the conversation, but modifying the amounts of fiber that you're having the day before, um, maybe modifying how you're eating foods that contain fiber. So modifying the texture, cooking foods, things like that can actually be helpful. Um, and actually sometimes fat can play a role in GI distress. So that may be something that if you're sensitive to, you may want to pay attention to how much you're taking in again, maybe the day before. Or so, and of course, right before the long run, which it shouldn't be a lot right before a long run anyway. But, but if you notice that you're eating some sources of high, uh, some high fat food sources, um, and all of those things can be used to help manage that. But another thing to consider is that when we're running, um, there's some impact there, right. That may affect <laughs> our organs. Um, and the intensity can sometimes impact our blood flow and our digestion and hormones that are being released. And all of these things can play a role in what's often termed runner's trots as well. So sometimes it's not just the diet. And I think people are so quick to blame the diet and I get it. I'm a GI dietitian. It can play an important role, but it's not always the be all end all. I think sometimes we put too much emphasis on diet and while it's worth looking into and exploring, um, you don't want to ignore those other factors as well. So if you're someone who's really struggling with that, um, sometimes modifying your pace, sometimes modifying the duration of your runs until you can get a handle on it. And then gradually increasing from there can be helpful. Um, and then the last point I'll mention is we know that that gut brain connection is so important. And so imagine first, if you've had this terrible experience where maybe you're going on a long run and there's no bathrooms and all of a sudden it's like, oh, gotta go. <laughs> and it's really bad. And, um, you know, you, you're really at a loss for what to do. I would imagine that the next time you go out for a long run, that might cross your mind. Um, and so that, that brings us into a whole other territory of 
IBS management, but also just simply if you are someone who doesn't have IBS and you've had this type of experience, um, how you can manage that uh, and how, how it may impact you in terms of future races or future um, training days. And there may be some methods that can be helpful in terms of really managing that gut brain <laughs> communication as well. So it sounds like it could be a bunch of different things, which is it. That's why GI stuff is so hard to pinpoint. And I think it's so hard for people to fix because you have to try so many different tactics to kind of figure out what's going wrong there, which is also why if you have that kind of issue, you should see a gastroenterologist, but you should also meet with a GI dietitian because they're probably going to help you figure it out, trial and error of different things, because it's hard to do on your own. But it's funny because you laughed when you said, you know, you shouldn't really be eating high fat before a long run. But I've seen people at the start of races eating a croissant or a breakfast sandwich or something like that. And I think it's just there's kind of a lack of education of sports nutrition, which is why I do what I do that people don't really know that like, for instance, the croissant is made with a ton of butter, and that's going to sit in your stomach, and that's not going to be great for you. So those kinds of things could be like the small thing that's really messing with your stomach. And then I always like to think if someone's doing an overhaul of their whole diet, right, or even a whole overhaul of their fueling strategies, and maybe a lot of that doesn't even need to be altered. Imagine the stress on on someone's life doing this. And if it's unnecessary, that just always breaks my heart. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's, it could be even just, I know hydration plays into also your bowel movements, right? There's like some sort of connection there. Of course. Yeah. So staying, making sure that you're hydrated, not just during your race, but also before that's something that a lot of people focus on hydration almost as like their mid fueling strategy. But if you're starting off dehydrated, you're kind of starting behind the eight ball there. Um, and it can certainly lead to some GI symptoms as well. I always like to say that, um, fiber and water kind of work together (laughs) in this harmonious sort of way. Um, and you know, each person's going to have their own individualized needs and, and what they tolerate and what feels best for them and what keeps them regular. Um, but it's important to explore that prior to race day so that you have an understanding of what's comfortable for you because it's going to look different than the next person. And yeah, that's where working with a a GI dietitian, um, and a sports, uh, nutrition expert can be really helpful as well because that's something that I think really gets lost in, um, translation when people are searching for things online or trying to self-manage. Um, and there's all these general recommendations out there and they really may not be totally relevant to you. Yeah. It's, it's super confusing. So I think it's helpful to bring in an expert. And, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, since you mentioned fiber is, most of the people who are listening, I specialize in plant-based diets. So most of the people who are listening are plant-based, maybe not hundred percent vegan or vegetarian, but eat a lot of plants. And mm-hmm. one of the things I hear a lot about is when you eat a lot of plant-based proteins, they have a ton of fiber, especially beans, lentils, you know, and not even just the proteins, the vegetables. If you're doing the cruciferous vegetables, tons of fiber, also known to be causing gas and bloating. <laughs> How do you rectify that if you're an athlete and you want to have fiber because it's good for you? 
And you also, I mean, not to be too crude, but we're talking about poop. So let's just talk about poop. You want to, you want to poop before you run, not during, or before your exercise, not during. So you want to eat fiber for that reason, but you don't want to eat too much. So like, what, how do you help people manage that? Sure. It can be a delicate balance. And also just as a side note, I think I talk about poop more than food in my (laughs) practice. So we're cool with poop here. Um, (laughs) But that being said, the first thing I would want to do is I would want that individual to define what plant-based means to them. Cause as you mentioned, it can mean so many different things and that can really impact our recommendations. If someone's not eating any animal proteins, we're really going to want to be cognizant about um, how much of some of these plant-based proteins and what types we're recommending. Because if you think about it, the overall volume that they're going to be consuming of these foods is probably going to be more than someone who is allowing some animal uh, proteins into their diet, whether they're more of a pescatarian um, or vegetarian lifestyle with eggs, for example, or, um, or maybe they even do eat um, both plants and uh, animals, but they're trying to just make their diet more plant-centric, right? So plant-based can mean a lot of things. Um, But that being said, I think we can, there's a lot I can say here. I let's start by saying, I think we can use our knowledge of the low FODMAP diet, which I know that we've, we've talked about before together. Um, we can use our knowledge of the low FODMAP diet to kind of gear us towards some options that we know are less fermentable and probably less likely to trigger some of this GI distress. I'm wait, um, I'm going to interrupt you. FODMAP stands for, tell me again, <laughs> I, I've written like six articles on it. I should know. <laughs> fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. A mouthful, I know. Basically, it stands for fermentable short-chain carbohydrates that, well, here, we'll back up. So we'll explain FODMAP, and then I'll answer that question after. Yeah, I was going to ask about FODMAPs anyway, so. (laughs) Sorry, I went out of of your um, desired order. So, um, uh, when it comes to, uh, FODMAPs, I always like to explain that, um, these foods are not bad. In fact, a lot of them are really wonderful, um, and nutritious. It's just that they tend to be fermentable and we all have, um, uh, bacteria that do wonderful things for us, uh, in our gut. One of the things they do is they break down food that we cannot break down ourselves. And they do that through a process called fermentation, Um, And that fermentation will release gas as a byproduct and may draw water into the gut or have kind of an osmotic effect. So um, this happens in everyone. This is not something that only happens in those with IBS, for example. Um, However, in IBS, what we see is that this occurring in the presence of what's called visceral hypersensitivity, which is like a fancy way of saying you got a sensitive gut. So we know that those with IBS, again, because of that, um, disordered gut brain interaction may perceive this as maybe more painful, more uncomfortable. And that's not to say that this is all in someone's head. It is saying that they are truly feeling these symptoms differently than someone who may be having this process occur. And uh, again, is, is not wired that way. Um, and so 
that being said, we know that, um, the low FODMAP diet is, um, potentially very helpful for many people with irritable bowel syndrome and using that knowledge of the, the physiology of what's going on. Sometimes we can see if someone's having a diet that is full of these fermentable foods and it may be contributing even independent of IBS. Um, because if someone's really having large amounts of these high FODMAP foods, there's going to be a lot of fermentation going on, um, and that can feel uncomfortable. And so, um, using what we know about some plant-based proteins that are suitable for the low FODMAP diet, we can start maybe edging out some of the things that they may be taking in, in abundance that could be triggering symptoms and actually start bringing in some items that are a little more likely to be well-tolerated um, while still meeting the, the desires of that person to be plant-based in whatever way that means for them. Can you um, give me some examples of low FODMAP versus high FODMAP, I guess, plant-based proteins? And also I'm assuming you have a list or there's a list I can put in the show notes for people so they can look up FODMAP foods. Sure. So to answer that quickly, the best source I always say would be going straight to the source and Monash University does all of the research on um, the low FODMAP diet. It, it really um, stemmed from there. And so that being said, that would really be the best resource. They have a lot of resources on their website. Um, and also they do have a, an app that's very low cost one-time purchase um, and is very worth downloading if you're someone who is um, exploring this diet and hopefully it's you know in in the presence of a healthcare provider who's guiding you through it um, but that can be a really a really helpful tool um, but to answer your question about uh, low fodmap uh, plant-based proteins um, certain canned beans may be better tolerated than um, beans that are not canned and even some varieties that are canned. So for example, canned chickpeas, um, in, in certain portions, canned lentils, these are items that are, um, lower in FODMAPs than many other varieties. Canned black beans also tend to be a little bit lower. Um, why that is, is because, uh, FODMAPs are water soluble. So if those foods are naturally a little lower in FODMAPs, and then they're sitting in that water in the can, you can even rinse them, strain them and, those FODMAPs can kind of leach into the water um, and it just makes it a little bit uh, lower <laughs> FODMAP uh, when you're, when you're eating the food. Um, and then soy is kind of a funny one. So soybeans are high FODMAP, but depending on the processing of soy, because it can become a lot of different things um, that can actually be used. So for example, firm tofu, tempeh is low FODMAP. Um, and also certain, um, protein powders, even plant-based protein powders could potentially be low FODMAP, but it just depends on their ingredients. Typically what we see is when there's an isolate. So like, um, a soy protein isolate, for example, that tends to be better tolerated than a concentrate, which can contain that carbohydrate portion and, and tends to be more fermentable. That's really interesting. I had, I didn't know that about canned beans and it, it's funny because everyone must be different in this regard as well, because I can eat, I literally eat beans every day. I can eat beans, but I cannot eat onions, which, uh, you know, onions 
destroy my stomach, but beans are fine for me. So it's just like, everyone must figure out what works for them. Exactly. Well, and just backtracking a little, that's sort of the purpose of the low FODMAP diet is it's this framework, but everyone's going to find their own dietary triggers if they're sensitive to FODMAPs. And, um, for example, the galacto oligosaccharides, which are or GOS, cause that's a mouthful, um, are often found in, uh, beans and some beans may also contain the fructans. Um, but onions, uh, will contain more of those fructans. So again, depending on what you are sensitive to, you may react to one food and not another. And then even from there, certain uh, beans will have different levels of these FODMAPs. And that's why personalizing it is so important because you don't want to be overly restrictive. Um, but I always like to think of it as being very portion driven. And so again, in certain portions, even some of these high FODMAP foods, or even if you're not very sensitive, will um, will be okay. And then uh, in much larger portions, it can really start to add up. (laughs) And then even someone who may not have a strong sensitivity, if they're going overboard with some of these foods, again, it, it can just add up in terms of portions and feel quite uncomfortable. That makes a lot of sense. And earlier you said something about the texture of food plays a role as well. Yeah. So I think fiber is a really tricky, um, topic. There's a lot that we can say about it. Um, but one thing is we know that fiber is really beneficial for health. However, we know that those with certain GI conditions, um, uh, and also of course, if we're talking about sports nutrition here, we know that fiber, um, can be a little bit difficult to tolerate. So um, one thing we can do, of course, is distribute fiber evenly throughout the day. And we can um, maybe try focusing on certain types of fiber. So for example, soluble fiber tends to be a little better tolerated than insoluble fiber when we're talking about larger portions, especially. Um, And then with the low FODMAP diet, of course, choosing um, low FODMAP sources of soluble fiber there too. Um, but an, another thing to consider is actually how we prepare that food and modify that texture. Because if you think about it, uh, if you have this softer food, that's a little bit easier to digest. Um, it's probably less likely to be giving you those, uh, those struggles when you're running. So if you're having all this roughage and then you're going on a run, Um, we know that insoluble fiber can kind of speed up transit time. Maybe it causes some urgency. And of course it's going to be a little bit more difficult for your body to, uh, to break down, um, for the microbes to break down. And so that being said, um, we would want to shift away from that. And instead of having just to make it clear, like a big salad, maybe cooking some vegetables, peeling the skins off those vegetables, those can all be ways to increase tolerance without actually swapping out what you're eating. And then from there, depending on the person, we may want to focus on um, different foods, right. Or, or swapping out different options, just depending on if someone's sensitive to, to something. I feel like I'm learning so much because (laughs) like I said, I've, I've definitely known onions as a trigger for myself. So if I have guacamole that has like uh, raw onions in it, I love it and I'll eat it. But too much of it really makes my stomach 
not happy. But if I have cooked onions in a dish, I'm like somewhat okay. So that's really interesting. That's probably why. And that really may not necessarily be a FODMAP issue. We know that the processing of foods can impact FODMAPs. However, cooking foods, um, you know, cooked onions will still be high FODMAP. However, again, modifying that texture can just make it a little bit easier for some people, make it a little bit easier on our gut. Um, and one thing I will say, just as a little tip, if, if you do love guacamole and you can't have, um, the raw onions in it, replacing the onions with, um, the green, uh, dark green tips of scallions can give you that onion flavor and is actually low FODMAP. If you're, if you are a little sensitive to those fructans. That is a great tip. And I know that there's a lot of tips from GI dietitians on this kind of stuff too, of like how to replace things. And I'm going to give everyone Alyssa's, or I'm going to have you give your info at the end so that they can follow you and get more. But I have one more question for you, which is about sports supplements, like things like sports drinks, gummies, gels. I know that those are harsh on the stomach for anyone, but say you have IBS can you still incorporate those into your training routine or, or do you have to stay away from them? Sure. That's a great question. So my overall answer to this, and then I'll get more nuanced with it is IBS is so individualized. So just because if you have been diagnosed and you're listening to this, it doesn't even mean you're sensitive to FODMAPs, right? Not everyone with IBS is sensitive to FODMAPs. And then, uh, if you do find that a low FODMAP diet is helpful, for example, you'll likely find that you're not sensitive to every FODMAP. And so long-term your diet will be much more liberalized. Um, But that being said, there are plenty of low FODMAP fueling options that are suitable. If, for example, I'm working with athletes um, who are going through the low FODMAP protocol um, or doing some modified version with someone who may benefit from maybe a, a lower amount of these high FODMAP foods in their diet. Um, but the other thing is remember that the low FODMAP diet is short-term. And so once you identify your triggers, for example, if you don't find that you're sensitive to, I don't know, for example, fructose, which we know tends to be in a lot of these supplements, um, then there's not really a need for you to avoid those supplements. However, if you do find that you're sensitive or while you're going through that protocol, um, or you're in the early stages of figuring out what you're sensitive to, there are lots of options that are made from other, uh, sugars that may be more likely to be tolerated. Um, so items that are made from either, uh, cane sugar, right. Or like, uh, sucrose, um, or maple syrup or, um, other options that again, tend to be more suitable for the low FODMAP diet and and what we see as being better tolerated. So basically bottom line on every question I asked you is it's going to depend on the person, which is kind of how it is with every, uh, you know, specialty in nutrition. It it really depends. The most frustrating and real answer when it comes to any nutrition question. (laughs) No, but that's also why working with a dietitian helps because they'll walk you through your diet and what you're doing and all that stuff and kind of try to help you pinpoint all of those things. So if people want to learn more from you, where can they find you, your website, your social media? 
Sure. So my website is um, alyssalavie.com. So A-L-Y-S-S-A-L-A-V-Y.com. Not very difficult to remember. Um, <laughs> and my uh, Instagram is alyssalavie.rd. So um, that's where I really share most of my information is my website and my Instagram. And you can kind of learn fun tidbits on there and also stay in the loop with any updates regarding uh, nutrition counseling within my practice. Um, blog posts and information and uh, my trust your gut IBS management online course. Awesome. And I'm sorry, I called you Lavi before. So Lavi, Alyssa. I'm Levy. pretty sure everyone says Lavi and I just never correct people. So uh, there are people who have known me for many years that I feel like still say Lavi. <laughs> I, we're going to end on this. I usually ask people how to say their name because I don't want to mess up people's names because it's rude, right? But it was such a straightforward name that I didn't ask. So. I always joke around. It's like four letters, but it always gets um, always gets mispronounced. <laughs> I know. And I mean, I know you, but you had a different last name. But anyway. That I, is true. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, this was a great conversation. Thank you so much for joining. I'm sure people are going to love this and have so many more questions. So I hope they reach out. And thanks again. Thanks so much for having me. It was so fun. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Natalie Rizzo. And if you want to learn more from me, follow me on social media at Greenleats or visit my website at greenleats.com.